0: We read the Word of the Lord this morning, congregation, as we find it in the book of Hebrews. We're going to read together Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 11 through verse 28. Hebrews 9, beginning at verse 11 through verse 28. It's on page 1871. 1871 in the Pew Bibles. Hebrews 9, beginning at verse 11, let us listen to this word the Lord speaks to us. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but He entered the most holy place once for all by His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean." In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll on all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. May the Lord bless this reading and our hearing of his word this morning. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when I read a chapter... And the words as we've read them this morning, like those found in Hebrews chapter 9, I'm reminded of an old hymn, it's not one of the ones we're going to sing this morning, but it's the hymn, there is a fountain, William Copers, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stain. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Now I'm reminded of that, and I rejoice in it wholeheartedly as I trust you do also, but I'm also reminded that this is not a theme, that in some circles finds a ready reception, You know how it is with preachers nowadays, we sometimes do a little Google searching in the way of homework in preparation for our sermon, and so I did. And I put the word blood theology in there, and there pops up an essay, an article by an associate of someone called Rob Bell, who wrote a book, Love Wins. And the title of his piece was, A Better Atonement. And the implication was we need another view than this blood theology that so-called fundamentalist preachers uh, who build their nurturing on the, of the congregation, he put it on the sands of ignorance in their preaching and in their teaching. Well, I'm here this morning, congregation, to echo the language of the author of Hebrews and suggest to you, we'll come back to that at the end, that there is no better covenant or atonement than the one sealed with the blood of Jesus. And I am not ashamed, and I trust you are not ashamed, to embrace, if that's what you want to call it, the blood theology of which the author of Hebrews speaks in our passage. The passage really almost drips with blood. (laughs) If you were listening carefully, you'll notice that he repeatedly uses the language uh, throughout the whole chapter. In verse 12, the blood of goats and calves. In verse 13, the blood of goats and bulls. And then again in verse 14, the blood of Christ. And then again in verse 18, the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. And then verse 19, the blood of calves. If that weren't enough, verse 20, the blood of the covenant. And then again, cleansed with blood, the shedding of blood, verse 22. And if that weren't enough, he ends late in the chapter, verse 25. The high priest enters into the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. You cannot avoid reckoning with what is it that Christ has done by the shedding of his blood for your and my redemption. At the least, the shedding of blood, as we'll see, means the death of the one whose blood is shed. Or another way of putting it, it means he gave his life over as a sacrifice to obtain our redemption, to set us free from the sentence of death that we find ourselves under by virtue of our sins, sin that brings condemnation and death. Nothing, says the author of Hebrews, but the blood of Jesus will do. Now, the first thing I would have us notice as we look at this passage together is what the author tells us about the nature of Christ's work in the middle of the section that we read together. That Christ's work is the work of a mediator, and you might say the work of a testator. You say, well, that's a big word, Dr. Venema. What do you mean by that? Well, let me explain in a moment. This is the way he puts it, beginning at verse 14, after he's talked about the blood of Jesus being better than the blood shed by bulls and calves and goats under the Old Covenant. He says this at verse 14, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator, there's our word, of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Now that's a lot of words. Let's start with the simple question what is a mediator appointed to do? Well, you even know from within your own experience that when someone is at odds with someone else, say a husband with his wife, a wife with her husband, uh, you need a mediator who goes between, who speaks on behalf of both parties and aims to bring them to a state of peace Restoration and reconciliation. If children are having problems with their parents, or maybe uh, brother and sister are duking it out, uh, sometimes parents have to what? Mediate. Find out what's the problem. Why are you mad at your sister? Why are you angry with your brother? What's the cause of this rupture in your relationship? And so whether within marriage or family or in business, between owners and workers and uh, all kinds of circumstances, you can imagine in life where you have two parties that for some reason need to be reconciled. Now the background for this, Christ as mediator, is that we have two parties, a holy God and a sinful people. And one of the good things about being a preacher is you always know the people to whom you come, even if you're an interloping pastor the way I am this morning. One thing I know about you and about myself, maybe you've forgotten, but it's you're an unholy sinner. You have not kept God's law perfectly. You don't have the wherewithal to come into God's presence and say to God, accept me. Take delight in me. Embrace me just the way I am. Well, he can't do that and be the God he is, perfectly holy, unless something, a mediator, comes along and provides for us what we need in order to become cleansed, sanctified, purified, presentable in God's presence. He is not pleased with us in our sin. He cannot accept us. The whole Old Testament ceremony in terms of the sacrificial system was a reminder to Israel repeatedly. Every time a guilt offering A sin offering, a burnt offering, was offered to God daily and annually on the Great Day of Atonement. They were being taught and tutored and reminded that there's a problem. And it's more serious than Houston. We have a problem. Brothers and sisters, as unholy sinners, we have a problem. And the problem is, how do we enter into the presence which was signified by the most holy place in the tabernacle of God's presence, with any kind of confidence that He'll accept us and receive us gladly? And so Christ is given to us as a mediator, greater than any mediator under the old covenant. And the interesting thing is, He comes To us, not only as a go between to reconcile us to God, but reconciles God to us. This mediator, we're already told in the very first chapter of the book of Hebrews, is God Himself. Come to us having assumed our flesh and blood. And He uses beautiful words early on in the letter or the sermon, which is the book of Hebrews. He says, Not ashamed to call the likes of you and me his brothers, his sisters. He assumed our flesh and blood in order to undertake on our behalf everything needed to bring us to a place where we are become acceptable. One in whom God can delight and receive into his presence. And who can come to him without a shred of fear or anxiety or uncertainty in his presence. But now notice he doesn't end there. He goes on to speak of this covenant mediator Christ as also a testator. I said to you earlier, old oh, Dr. Venema, what is that? You're thinking, what is a testator? You've heard of something called the last will and Testament. Well, listen carefully to what he says. In the case of a will, it's very interesting, in the original language used by the author of Hebrews, the word covenant and the word here translated, first used twice and translated covenant, is exactly the same word as is now translated will. He's talking about the same thing. What did this covenant mediator do to bring us into renewed fellowship with God, to bridge the distance between a holy God and a lost sinner. This is what he, put, what he says. In the case of a, of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. Do you agree? You've heard of something called a last will and testament? It's not read until the one who gives it is deceased, died. I don't know if any of you are Downton Abbey watchers, but you'll forgive me for using this by way of an illustration. The program and the series begins with a big question. Uh, Is the first in line in respect to the proper heir to the Abbey and all of its extraordinary wealth? uh, Is he still alive or has he died? And if he's died, then Matthew, one of the key players, will inherit the estate. This is a kind of an odd, maybe not the best illustration, but I read in the Chicago Tribune some months ago that there was someone who won the lottery. They hit the jackpot. The jackpot. They were uh, suddenly introduced to tremendous wealth. But the person who received the lottery money mysteriously died. And it turned out that he died poisoned at the hand of the next in line. (laughs) The person who would inherit, should he die, the goods. Now, it's not a good illustration because it involves uh, a crime and things of that sort. But it proves the main point, which is this. You will not enter into your inheritance unless the one covenanting to grant to you by way of their sealed in blood, that is, their having died, that you will be the proper heir and recipient of what he's purposed and declared he wishes to give you. Now the analogy breaks down, of course, because the testator in this case did give his life, did, by the shedding of his blood, undergo death and seal by his death his readiness to sacrifice himself completely to obtain for you your inheritance in him. But he lives forever. Having died, having been raised from the dead, having ascended to the Father's right hand as your forerunner and advocate before the Father, lives forever forever. To ensure that his last will in testament comes to fruition to your good, your benefit. In the case of a will, says the author of Hebrews, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect like while the one who made it is living. Now, you may have noticed later on in this passage, the author of Hebrews refers to uh, a teaching in the Levitical legislation. Verse 22, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, there's nothing magical about the blood. That song we sang before the sermon could mislead us. There's power in the blood. The sacrifice of lambs, bulls, and goats under the Old Testament didn't involve a procedure of bloodletting, though their blood was shed. The author, uh, the Spirit speaking in Leviticus 17.11, gets to the heart of it when he says, "...for the life of a creature is in the blood." Blood symbolizes the life of the one whose blood is shed and thereby given up or sacrificed, offered on behalf of another. And he goes on to say, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourself on the altar as the blood makes atonement for one's life. Blood... By itself, accomplishes nothing. The key is the one whose blood shed has forfeited his life in payment to obtain for you the benefit of his sacrifice on your behalf. And unless someone, and in this case, not a bull, not a goat, Not any of the sacrificial offerings of the Old Testament, none of which could make satisfactory substitution for you and me. Only God himself, having assumed our flesh and blood, could offer himself up as a sacrifice of atonement, symbolized by the shedding of his blood to obtain for us that life, blessing, acceptance, and fellowship with God for which He came and for which He offered Himself a sacrifice upon the cross. Now, it's very interesting. The author of Hebrews uh, proves this with two illustrations from the Old Testament types and shadows of the law, this principle that it is There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. The first is when the Lord covenanted with His people through Moses. After the giving of the law, He says, When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll in all the people. This is recorded for us, not in Exodus 20, which records the giving of the law, but in Exodus 24, We're told that Moses sprinkled from a bowl filled with blood upon the altar, and then he went about among the people and he sprinkled them with blood, symbolizing, in fact, the very language employed in. Exodus 24, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, are quoted by our Lord. So apparently our Lord was also a teacher of a kind of blood theology. When he instituted the Lord's Supper, this is the blood of the new covenant given for you. And the second illustration that the author of Hebrews gives us is at the dedication and inauguration of the worship at the tabernacle. On that occasion also, he says, in the same way, he, that is Moses, sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. Can you imagine that? Here's the priest decked out in his Sabbath best gold-embroidered tabernacle with beautiful curtains, lavishly adorned with the splendor of heavenly presence of the Lord among his people. And the whole business, people, priests, tent, everything is covered in blood. And he wants to remind them that that blood was God's teaching declaration among his people that without the sacrifice and the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, congregation, you may say to me, but pastor, uh, I'm not sure I understand all of that, but of what benefit is this to you and me? Well, let me just say, going back to where I started We don't need a better atonement than this. Because notice how the author of Hebrews concludes the chapter. He says, Because of the blood of our mediator, our testator, we, and he uses very interesting language, verse 23, It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves... With better sacrifices than these. Who are the heavenly things here? They're not angels. They're you and me. Covered with the blood of Jesus. Perfectly purified. Cleansed. Made altogether a sweet smelling aroma. In the presence of God himself. A perfect cleansing. In fact, he says in this passage that the blood of the Old Testament sacrificial victims could only cleanse them outwardly. But we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus in our consciences from the inside out, perfectly cleansed, fitted, suited for fellowship with the living God. And so if you don't want to be covered with the blood of Jesus, you will not be among the heavenly things whom God gladly receives and recognizes as suitable, fit, properly cleansed and purified uh, vessels for communion with himself. And not only says that, he says something else. He says, whereas in the Old Testament, it was a perpetual, daily, 365 days per year, annually, year after year, on the Day of Atonement. The going into the most holy place by the high priest appointed for the year to present a sacrifice. Christ, he said, did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true sanctuary. He entered heaven itself, the very presence of God, and what? To appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. I read a... Commentator on this passage who used a lovely illustration of what the author of Hebrews is telling us. He tells the story of a doctor who lived in a little village and tended many patients, some of whom were quite poor. And upon his death, his wife was seeking to receive his property as her appropriate rightful inheritance. And in his ledger, he had a number of instances where there were people who were too poor to pay the price. And he wrote in the ledger, paid in full. And then the commentator goes on to say the wife was a bit jealous to receive the fullness of her inheritance, so she brought the matter to court, seeking the judge to declare that they should still pay. And the judge said, it is written in the ledger, by the testator, that their payment is paid in full. The author of Hebrews is telling us that it is written with God's own finger, sealed with the blood of his own dear son. Your sins, my sins, the ledger is clear. There is no further payment. And this is where it gets particularly delightful, brothers and sisters. He says, that means, this is how he ends, that even though it is appointed once for all men and women to die, that means you and me, no exceptions, young and old alike, and after that the judgment, who is it who will come to judge? Our high priest whose blood has fully atoned for all our sins. It's told by among the Jewish writers that the great moment on the Day of Atonement was not so much as the congregation assembled, the congregation of Israel, when the priest went into the innermost sanctuary, but it was the moment when he came out. One of them puts it this way, how glorious the priest was when the people gathered round him as he came out of the inner sanctuary, like the morning star among the clouds, like the moon when it is full, like the sun shining upon the temple of the Most High, like the rainbow gleaming in glorious clouds, like roses in the days of the first fruits, like lilies by a spring of water, and he goes on. Why? Because it symbolized the coming to the people of one who had made the sacrifice. But you don't think that for God's people at the Lord's coming, when our great high priest appears for a second time, when he comes For you, that the congregation, the people of the Lord, covered with the blood of Jesus, will not say of him how glorious he is when he comes from the heavenly sanctuary. Like the morning star among the clouds is our mediator and testator if there should be any doubt regarding what he was willing to do to procure the redemption of an unholy company like you and me, think upon the sacrifice of himself, the shedding of his blood. That's why we sing. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile, isn't that striking? No cleaner, no more pure, no more acceptable than he, as vile as he, wash all my sins away. Do you know that comfort? Do you anticipate the joy? Of the high priests coming from the sanctuary. May God grant it. Amen. Our Father in heaven, may we not seek in our day ever a better atonement than the one Christ has made. May we rejoice in no other Savior than the one who was willing to shed his blood, to die in order that we might live to take up for us the burden of our sin and make a sacrifice beyond our understanding. Sealed with his blood, give his very life to ensure our inheritance, to open the door for us into your presence, to give us a full confidence that all of our sins have been washed away. And we have no ground for fear, the fear of death, the fear of separation from you, the fear of coming under judgment. May we rejoice always in Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Let's sing, congregation.